you know, we have to be so conscious that when we're giving this kind of information, we're not saying cabbage cures cancer. It is, oh, it's absolutely. not, you know, and that, that is not the point. But what we're saying is cabbage could be a really great thing to eat. Cruciferous mm. <laughs> vegetables are good for your health. Precisely. You know. I'm Dr. Mark Rowe and welcome to my podcast, In the Doctor's Chair. As a family physician, my expertise is supporting people in the areas of positive health and lifestyle medicine. Join me in conversations that share life lessons, health habits and leadership practices focusing on positive psychology, lifestyle medicine, and ways that enable you to live with more vitality on purpose. Appreciating that when it comes to your vitality, that everything is so interconnected. Episodes will air weekly, and you can find me wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, on my website, drmarkrow.com. As a practicing family doctor with expertise in lifestyle as medicine, my purpose is to encourage and support you in terms of positive health, personal growth, and all things well-being. As I say, to never stop starting. Each month on a live webinar, I teach learning by doing and learning by being. The why and the how of health-enhancing habits, giving you the science as well as support strategies to live with more vitality. I'd like to invite you to join my self-development club. To learn more and to sign up, visit drmarkrow.com. I'm delighted to be joined in the doctor's chair today by Dominy Kemp. Dominy is an award-winning chef, food writer and serial entrepreneur who got her MA in gastronomy and food studies back in 2019. Along with her sister Peaches, they were finalists of the Ernest & Young Entrepreneur of the Year here in Ireland, as well as being winners of Image Businesswoman of the Year. As a philanthropist, Dominie has worked with Wheatfield prison inmates looking at ways to reduce the cost of reoffending through entrepreneurial activities for prisoners upon their release. This was featured here in Ireland in a TV documentary, Prison Breaks, on Virgin Media. As an author, Dominie has written five cookbooks to date and was the Irish Times food writer for many years. She's currently the resident chef for Food and Wine magazine. Dominie has completed a diploma, a postgraduate diploma in positive health at the Royal College of Surgeons in Dublin, which focuses on integrative and lifestyle medicine. Her last cookbook, The Ketogenic Kitchen, has been a bestseller both in Ireland and the United States. Dominie is presented to healthcare professionals here in Ireland as well as in Switzerland as a patient advocate for food as medicine. Dominie, it's wonderful to have you here in the doctor's chair. Thank you so much, Mark. It's lovely to be here. So, Domini, where did this passion and interest for food as medicine all come from? I think that I've always uh, had a great belief in the power of good food. And I suppose that was more around the idea of uniting people, bringing people together, sitting around a table. And I suppose the power that a good meal has in terms of breaking down barriers so it was more of a, a, a gastronomical and social type of interest, uh, which has, has fueled my career in hospitality, so to speak. But like a lot of shift in directions that we all take, it was actually being diagnosed with breast cancer in 2013 that really made me sit up and say, right, how can I contribute to my health and recovery? 
And really the first place that I knew I wanted to turn was lifestyle interventions, mainly food and exercise and mental health well-being. And what changed for you at that stage? I mean, that must have been a real shock being diagnosed with breast cancer at a relatively young age. Yes. Yeah, I think it was my absolute frustration when I was starting to approach treatment. And I'm, you know, I had full conventional treatment. Uh, I had chemotherapy and then a mastectomy and then radiotherapy. So it was the whole kit and caboodle. And I guess that I was trying to say, you know, what should I do? What should I eat? What should I? And I was handed a copy of the food pyramid. And I looked at and I was sort of saying, are you serious? You know, because uh, I guess I would have had a good understanding in terms of big food and lobbying and I guess all the the difficulties um, that we face as an industry in terms of, of trying to maintain good food and people cooking at home and, and not that complete hijacking of our, our diets and food by big food. So when I looked at the food pyramid, it just was predominantly branded products, very highly processed food. And I looked at this and I was like, no, not, not, not for me. And I suppose then I really started uh, reading a lot of, you know, went to PubMed, started looking in the literature and really trying to get a sense of what worked, what didn't. And of course, there are so many competing noise around this space. And I, I suppose it's one of those things, the more you learn, the less you know. And mm -hmm. it was really trying to understand what would be the best approach for me, not a, an approach for everyone, but what would be the best uh, approach for me. And I guess that really fueled my interest in, in food as medicine. Fantastic. I'm just thinking in real time about this quote, you know, as the island of knowledge increases and expands, so does the shoreline of ignorance in the sense, you know, the, the more we learn and, and know, the more we realize we don't know. Oh, without a doubt. And I guess, you know, everyone, when you're diagnosed as well, I think everyone's very keen to uh, tell you what they did and how they did it and how they approached it. And I, I was very, I, I didn't really want to hear uh, anyone else's story. I just wanted to go and, and learn and try and understand myself what would, would uh, suit me. And I guess, you know, you hear a lot of noise, you know, don't eat dairy, don't eat meat, don't eat this, don't do that. But I think after all this time, it's being able to cook for yourself, being able to stay in control of your food, to be able to be in control of your ingredients and really uh, focus on, you know, herbs, spices, green leafy vegetables, uh, whole foods, cooking, healthy forms of, of protein, fat, and, and so on, and avoiding the hyper processed foods. I think that's sort of a place that most people can agree and, and sit with. After that, it really starts splintering off in terms of the approach you take. So what you're saying is the main changes you made, Domini, was to embrace the idea of real food, lots of plants, lots of color, um, yes. and staying away from the highly processed foods. Without a doubt. And I think the more, you know, we hear a lot, sugar feeds cancer. And I think, again, mm. it's probably an oversimplification of a, of a pretty complex process. And, you know, again, the research is really pointing to insulin being a problem for many cancer patients. And so when you you have those highly processed foods that break down to uh, glucose very quickly, you do have a corresponding insulin response. And so experts can all disagree and there can be a lot of noise and a lot of, of fighting, but I think it, it distracts and takes away from what should be simpler messaging for people. Um, and, you know, there's often a lot of concern about people going on different elimination diets and so on. You know, for for uh, the record, I'm very much a big fan of, of low carb eating. 
But um, low carb uh, slash ketogenic foods, again, people think, you know, it's all steak and eggs, lots of fat, unlimited fats. And of course, that's not the case, you know. And so whatever diet or approach you follow, what I would say is it should be of, of quality and nutrient dense. And, you know, that's the important part. And, you know, we have to factor in gut health. We have to factor in all these things. And I suppose my approach was really to try and say, right, what am I going to do to support my immune system during pretty arduous treatment? I don't want to do anything to interfere with treatment. And, you know, there's some absolute no-goes in terms of certain ingredients and foods that they like you to stay away from when you're going through chemo and so on. And you have to take that advice on board and, and listen to that messaging. But it was, what do I want to do that won't interrupt treatment, that will keep me strong, that will keep me full of energy um, and, and help me get to the far side of this treatment? And I think, Dominic, you know, because, you know, we eat three times a day, that's 1100 times a year, 11,000 times over the next 10 years, those small everyday choices we make can really be health enhancing or health depleting. And yes. and I think it is really about knowing yourself well enough to, to know what suits you best and to build in a foundation of great foods that are going to support your health. As you said, plenty of color, plenty of plants. And focus and herbs on and spices food, as herbs well. And spices, you know, absolutely. We we always forget the benefit of them. And again, it's 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 also the sort of synergistic effect that you can get through different foods. So even very simple things with you know having lemon with uh, you know spinach, which of course in cooking terms is is a very natural thing. If you saute a little spinach, you might add a little squeeze of lemon juice, and of course then from a, a kind of nutritional aspect, you get this enhanced benefit in terms of the iron. So these small hacks that mm. are actually grounded in culinary traditions that go back years, that really excites me because this older knowledge that, that you know, old cooks have had in passing down these hints and tricks, not only do they taste delicious, but you get this added enhanced nutritional benefit. Mm. And for me, that's really exciting. I agree. And I think it, it's the wisdom of olden times is really incredible. And it has lasted through the generations because it has been wise and because it has worked. I mean, I love Indian food. I love the spices. Mm -hmm. And but it's it's fascinating how, you know, turmeric and black pepper and all of the the, the peppers and, the, the, you know, the, the capsicum, which is very good for the vascular system and turmeric seems to be, you know, it seems to have some anti-cancer properties. Massive anti-inflammatory. You know, it's one of the most anti-inflammatory spices that that you yeah. know foods that are available. And yeah. I think there was a, a really wonderful book which I had read back in 2005, so a long time before I got diagnosed. And it's it was just called Anti-Cancer, and it was a worldwide bestseller by a doctor called Dr. Servan Schreiber. I think his name was yeah David Schreiber. Um, I think so. Now he did he did pass away eventually. I think he had a brain tumor and uh, but he wrote this wonderful book covering a huge amount of different diets across the world. And you know, interestingly, even though he he was a medic, he was very much his ideas around food were very much dismissed at the time and he he was quite surprised and shocked I suppose about how little appetite, uh, forgive the pun, there was to to embrace the idea of supporting conventional with with food and you know he wrote at length about the the turmeric and so on and i think right up to the idea that in in india in particular parts where they have a huge amount of turmeric in the diet that actually they have particularly low rates of particular cancers where other areas are um are more adversely affected 
So again, there's something in it. And, and, you know, we have to be so conscious that when we're giving this kind of information, we're not saying cabbage cures cancer. It is, oh, it's absolutely. not, you know, and that, that is not the point. But what we're saying is cabbage could be a really great thing to eat. Cruciferous mm. <laughs> vegetables are good for your health. Precisely, you know? precisely. Yeah, and that's the difference. And it's funny because David Schreber was a medic I had great admiration for. I read his book years ago and mm. I've recommended it to, I've prescribed it for many Thanks. patients, including yeah. medical friends over the years who found it invaluable. Good for you. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely place to start. And I think when when people, you know, and, and often people who've gone through cancer and, and different d- diseases like that, you, you often want to speak to somebody who's been through it the far side. And I know when I was first diagnosed, it can be very helpful to talk to someone who's quite positive about it and has come back and their hair has grown back and you can see them thriving because you think, OK, that that could be me in a, in a, in a year or two. I could be that. And that can be very encouraging to, to have that sort of poster person for you. But I definitely, when people kind of say to me, what do I do? What do I do? I just say, you know, this is a really good place to start in terms of a book. It's very gentle, very mm-hmm. accessible. And I think it gives people a really good overview of all the different options. And it's quite comforting as well. Absolutely. And I think more generally, you know, as lifestyle and medicine, as medicine becomes a real movement around the world, there's a really a growing appreciation of just how important the food choices we make are, you know, not just for preventing and sometimes even reversing some chronic health conditions, but for actually improving our lived experience, increasing our health span. And as I say, just allowing us to live with so much more vitality. Well, that's it. And it's, you know, it's this idea of thriving, not just surviving. And mm-hmm. sometimes, I think that the difficulty is that we all know what's wrong with the system and same, I'm sure you see it in healthcare all the time in terms of the, the difficulties with the, the health system that we have. And it just often feels like we miss sight of the basics of, of how to fix those root problems. And if we accept that, you know, up to 70% of, of non-communicable diseases are, can be prevented with lifestyle changes, you know, and that could include not smoking, not drinking and so on. If we accept that from the WHO, then a lot of that is in our power and, and a lot of it is in our hands. Now, I would also caveat that with uh, saying for certain people, they don't have those choices in order to make better lifestyle choices because right. being able to afford good food is a cost. It is an absolute cost. And the idea that you can eat well on a budget, yes, you can, but then you need time and knowledge and you need cooking facilities. So... I find it, it it can be a very frustrating conversation when we try and push back it or you hear this mantra that's saying, well, it's personal choice and people shouldn't go to McDonald's and they shouldn't do this and they shouldn't do that. And you think, well, if you have a few children, you're working full time, you don't have cooking facilities, you don't have the knowledge, you know, you can feed a family on 10 or 20 quid very fully, whereas... If you go to the supermarket and start cooking, mm-hmm. to it, you know, it's a very different thing. And so we have to be very mindful of that. It, it isn't the same. It isn't a level playing field when it comes to good food. Of course it isn't. And, you know, the greatest form of ill health in, in the Western world is, is poverty. And yes. even for people that are financially OK, people are often very time poor nowadays as well, which can be an extra challenge. An extra challenge. And I we have this argument amongst the, the, the chef community in terms of saying, well, you could feed a family for, you know, and you could make this delicious 
braised beef stew with all the vegetables in it for, you know, one euro 70 per person. It's like, but that might be eight hours of slow cooking and, and knowledge of how to do that in a good, you know, Le Creuset pan. Yes, you can totally do that. But that's not realistic or fair to sort of put that and say, well, if I can do that, when you, why can't you do that? Well, because that, that person may not have the um, ability and time and um, and money to be able to do that or the cookery knowledge, which I suppose is one of the reasons as chefs, we are all pushing so hard for more cookery education to be taught in schools because it is a life skill without a doubt to be able to feed yourself well. I mean, I think that's massive. Um, you, you, the idea of building someone's own health IQ so they can make better choices and decisions. I love that. Health and well-being, oh, you, you know. Yeah. And I yeah. really think that's what you're doing when you're looking at, at at food as medicine and culinary culinary medicine is really to support people to, f- to teach people to fish so they can feed themselves. Well, that's it, and it's it's also understanding the power that very processed food has on us. And people don't understand the billions that are spent in making these products so delicious, so savory, the mouthfeel, the explosion of flavor, and that you you cannot stop eating. And part of the reason you can't stop eating once you open that pack is because even if there's a tiny little bit of nutritional benefit in in those crisps or whatever they are uh, that are incredibly moorish, even if there's a tiny bit of nutritional benefit, the food companies will go out of their way to remove even that. So you never get a sense a sense that you're actually eating something your stomach. There's no, there's nothing of benefit. So your body just keeps at it, trying to get something from this, this product that will just never materialize. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess we are we are really hijacked by that. And you know, it's a big reason, I, and I'm I'm very prone and guilty of it. You know, I love junk food, and if there were no repercussions, I'd be a very lazy, you know, person that would probably eat a different diet. But there are repercussions, and I suppose making informed choices um, is something I I really value and try and teach my kids and so on. But I find just even bringing that food into the house, if it's there, I'll eat it. So I I try just not to bring it into the house. I think that's really good advice. You know, as I say, try and pre-design your environment so that you've got healthy options in the cupboard or healthy options in the kitchen when your willpower is down and you're tired and, and feeling a bit cranky that you, you want a bit of comfort. There's something healthy there for you to take because don't rely on your willpower to resist the biscuits or crisps at that stage. No, and you won't. And you won't. the thing is, it's it's just it's such a powerful hunger is a real powerful driver. And mm. uh, unfortunately, if, if there's poor choices, but, you know, I. A joke, and my kids will come in and say they're starving, and and I don't kind of say them when there's some broccoli there because I know. I know I'll be, <laughs> something something will be thrown at me. But at the same time, you do try and and, and make different dips and things, you know, to to try and encourage uh, slightly better uh, habits. Working with prisoners, Dominique, what was that like? It was fascinating, and I think that the you know that it kickstarted again from a kind of frustration. Sometimes I get involved in different things because I'm uh, frustrated with with what is available, I suppose. And uh, I had read an article about the the costs of prisoners uh, being north of seventy grand per annum per prisoners, but yet fifty percent of prisoners within three years end up back in the system. 
And I remember thinking, well, if people were just paid 50 grand to stay out of trouble. Surely that would be a saving to mm. the exchequer. Slightly tongue in cheek and, and facetious approach. But at the same time, I was kind of thinking, well, what's wrong? What's happening uh, with this? And uh, I suppose I've done work with uh, transition year students, usually about trying to set up food businesses and companies. I do love teaching. Um, I was a very bad student in my youth. I really I found it very difficult to accept anything at face value and and I, I wasn't great at, at studying. So it's, that's why it's been a real pleasure to go back in, in, as an adult. And I guess I approached the prison service and I said, you know, this seems like a, a slightly crazy system that is just a revolving door. And I said, I, I've had some experience in, in teaching people how to start up their own businesses and, and so on. And there was a course in the US that had proven very successful. And really, when I read the the results there, they they had a massive decrease in recidivism. And it just really resonated with me because uh, a lot of prisoners, they, they discuss this in business schools, believe it or not, have a lot of the same traits that entrepreneurs have. And I'm, I'm talking about more petty uh, criminals and, uh, you know, in terms of risk taking, you know, <laughs> managing teams and so on and so forth. And they were just saying there are some traits. And if we could tap into those traits before people made poor choices, could we actually do more to create entrepreneurs? So it was really taking those two things. And, and you know, again, a lot of entrepreneurs in general struggle with authority. They tend to want to do things their own way. And, and as an entrepreneur, I understand those things. So there was some synergy there in understanding. And I guess, you know, working in hospitality, you're, you're work, very used to working in these sort of tough environments where predominantly male and that never bothers me, and it's it's not something that uh, rattles me at all. And uh, so the IPS, the Irish Prison Service, were incredibly open to the idea of more people from the outside getting involved in programs where they could potentially reduce this recidivism. And, uh, you know, if we accept the idea that if you serve a sentence, justice should be served. If 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 that's the sort of principle that we we accept, which and I do again caveat that that may not be possible for everything and every crime and, and so on. But of course. if if we take it that uh, for, for certain crimes, you serve a sentence and you should be able to come out and try and live a good life and contribute to society. And if that's what we're aiming to do, then programs to help assist that are, are certainly worthwhile. And that's what it was all about. And we've had some really great results. We've had two businesses open up and it's just one of those things when you see people's lives change and you also not just see those prisoners' lives change, but the wives that come up every week and bring the children up every week. And those conversations that those men have with their family change and they talk about the company that they're starting up in prison and it gives them something to look towards when they come out. That mm. for me is, is, is massive because, again, it's, it's trying to break that cycle. Well, it is massive and you're sowing some seeds of hope. And I mean, you know, hope is such a, a potent elixir for, for possibility and for the future. Isn't and it? It, it is for all of us. And, you know, I think anything we can do to serve and support others less fortunate than ourselves is to be welcomed. I mean, many people in in prison are there because of as you said, poor choices, but perhaps the environments they grew they grew up in, lack of opportunity. There's all Without sorts of all sorts of reasons. And uh, it's not to sort of say that we're, we're condoning crime or anything like that. But we are saying, look, that in many instances, people do deserve a second chance 
and it's to try and give them the, the skills, isn't it, to to support them? I think so. And inevitably and undoubtedly, there are exceptions to those. But it's if we if we constantly design systems or take approaches that are geared towards the very small percentage of people that that are truly bad apples and um, mm-hmm. I think we end up ruining systems and and I'd say that about uh you know healthcare food everything it's it's you know there's so much around health and safety liability it's, there's so many layers of bureaucracy and difficulty in terms of preventing really good people doing really good work and I find those roadblocks so frustrating because I see people mm. in good positions getting so demoralized. And you think if we are preventing those basics because we're always trying to mitigate over here for people that are going to get around those loopholes, regardless of how many loopholes we put in the way. I think that's the sad thing where we can't take a more mature approach to you know our communities and our systems. Domini, how do you stay healthy yourself nowadays? It's a really funny one because I think when you're young, you are you feel invincible and you mm. just can't the idea and the concept of of trying to create good habits and lay the foundations for health that lay. It's just it really doesn't matter when you're younger. And every decade you get older and those aches and creaks and so on. Um, I suppose that's a really good incentive. I live a very active life and, um, you know, I'm so grateful that uh, Mm. I can still do that. And and that what requires what is required is a a dedication and a commitment to health. So, as I said, I'm I'm always, you know, in the balance because I I cook so much for, for food and for pleasure and so on. But then I have this big health conundrum as well. So I really try and work at, at living a really good, healthy life, 80 to 90% of the time. And I think it's those, it's what you spend the majority of your time doing that counts. You know, I was away in France and I was eating croissants and, and drinking wine every day and having a lovely time. And that's great, but I can't, that is not sustainable for me uh, year round. So commitment to exercise, early sleep, I really value sleep. And I think that that is probably one of the, when you look at all the pillars of lifestyle medicine and you you put a gun to the experts and I don't even I know we came across each other in the the College of Surgeons you did a brilliant lecture um for us but I think that when you put a gun to people's heads and, and say right what's the one thing saying diet lifestyle exercise and sleep and and stress and community what's the one thing that if you pull out will really really impact and initially everyone says oh everything everything's important but actually if you really drill down it they all say actually sleep you can get away with eating poorly for a longish period of time. But if your sleep is poor for for prolonged Mm -hmm. periods, everything else really, really goes uh, down the tube. So I think sleep is is critical, trying to be consistent with that, understanding the benefits of sleep hygiene um, and how to approach. And then exercise, good food. You know, I do a lot of intermittent fasting. I really try and eat early in the evening. I have a, I do track, so I have an aura ring. And, you know, you can see very clearly anything over a glass of wine, my sleep is really poorly interrupted. So it, it's paying attention. And I'm going to be 52 this year. And, you know, I I want to continue. And I, you know, the impact of poor choices is much greater at 52 than it was at 22. So what you're saying is movement as medicine, eating well, 
sleep as a foundation and more importantly, know, knowing yourself and really about being consistent, but not being extreme. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, I could easily be extreme. You know, it, it's uh, I definitely have that that type of personality. And there was a fantastic book that came out, I think, last year. It was a 4,000 weeks. And again, it was one of those management books yes. that, that talk. And, uh, you know, initially I was sort of writing it off, just like, oh, God, not another one of these, these books uh, to tell us how we can pack more into our day. But actually, the interesting thing I got from us, you know, the idea that we're zero inbox people or people with thousands. And I'd be the type of person, if I see somebody's inbox with thousands in it, I will start getting agitated looking at that going, how can you, you know, I have to have a clear desk, clear, the, you know, all that stuff. Um, but he was making the point, and it was actually a really valuable point that even if we clear the decks and we have zero emails and we're patting ourselves on the back, It'll fill up again tomorrow. It'll fill up again within an hour. And so the idea that you're constantly in this sort of carousel of just getting all this work done and feeling, yeah, it's like actually it's okay to go and take half an hour and watch something trashy with your kids on Netflix. And for me, that actually was quite useful. And I do try and and factor that in now a little bit more. What might you say to your 21-year-old self, Dominique, looking back? I think that sometimes I am frustrated with the lack of uh, respect for education at that time and really uh, being able to study is such a privilege. It is such a privilege. And I was definitely not uh, in a position to acknowledge that privilege at that age. I was wanting to go up fun and work and do everything else but but sit down and study. I just wasn't wouldn't have been able to do it. So I think to go back and do it has been a, a real privilege and, and honor, I guess, to be able to do that. So in some ways, I think maybe the experience of working and, and life experience, you know, put me on a different path. But I guess I would say the confidence that we miss out on or we lack, and I think especially women, and I do a lot around women in business and so on, the confidence that we have as we approach middle age and, and after, you know, children and as we approach menopause and all the rest of it, it takes on a very different element. And I think we really need to encourage our young women to be a little bit braver and more confident in terms of their ability, because we are often plagued with insecurity at that age and, and lacking in, in confidence. And I often say to women groups, you know, they the end of an evening, they'll be fretting about what they did or didn't say in a meeting and how they came across and did they upset someone. And I say, you know, often men are snoring. They're fast asleep. They are not fretting about what they did during the day or how they came across or how they appeared. And we probably need to encourage a little bit of that type of a frame of mind into our young selves. And maybe the men need to fresh a little bit more, you know, when they're younger. And again, it's having that incredible balance and lots of different voices and lots of different people at the table. I think that is is really critical for creating a better society. Mm, great advice. And, you know, looking forward, Dominique, five years from now, what do you hope might be that version of Dominique? I would really love to be able to say that I've been able to influence a bit more positively uh, our healthcare system through food. I think that is something I have a real burning ambition 
to try and see come to fruition because I, I believe so passionately in it. And there's some incredible people, incredible chefs working in the space and great examples of it worldwide. And there is a growing, I think, desire to see us really improve our healthcare systems through more effective ways than just throwing more money and more management at the system. And I think if we could Im- improve our nation's health through better food, I would I would really, really love to be a part of that. Well, I'm sure you will be, Dominique. You certainly have the passion and purpose to bring that to fruition. You strike me, Dominique, uh, and we have met before, you strike me as being a very grateful person. I am. And I think reading constantly about other people, other people's lives, impacts and 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 so on, I think is is a great way of reminding yourself how lucky we all are. And of course, everyone hits different times and different struggles. But even when I was diagnosed and going through treatment, I used to say, well, you know, I'm what if I was on a boat trying to cross the Mediterranean to get to a different country and, you know, to, to get on those boats, to travel across to a different country because you're fleeing something else. That's truly awful. You know, I, of course, going through a serious illness and a serious disease is, is terrible. But at the same time, I had options available. I had treatment, I had support, I had the roof of my head. And I guess right now, I sometimes feel that this people may call it this me culture. I do sometimes fret that there's a lot of, well, I want this and I want that. And really, so many of us are so fortunate. And there's so many people that are really, really dire circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I really try not to lose sight of that, regardless of how good or bad my own lot is in life. Oh, absolutely. And I, I really do think, you know, to be grateful for the wonderful gifts that we have in our life it's it's a great starting point and you know from a from a health point of view it brings you know perspective to the past as i say peace to the present moment and a profound sense of hope and optimism for the future and and it is such a wonderful antidote to feelings of of toxic stress and anxiety to really appreciate what you have and more importantly who you are i think so and and sometimes writing those things down can mm. just be a really good reminder, you know, and we all, we all know what we're supposed to do. We know the habits, you know, you know that when things are bad, you shouldn't go out, you know, burning the candle at both ends and everything. We know all these things. Doesn't mean that we always adhere to them or follow that advice. But at the same time, sometimes you do have to just pull back and enforce that bit of discipline to say, listen, I have to really try and and analyze here or do what I know will help me, which is, you know, to write things down, do a bit of journaling, try and get in control of your breathing. But when you're really stressed and you, you're fired up, it's very hard mm-hmm. to remind yourself of those tools. But we have this knowledge. It is just a question of sometimes tapping into it at those times of stress. And of course, it's the the, the biggest issue in it in healthcare is how do we get people to make better choices? How do we get people to to put away that pack of cigarettes to, you know, get out and take a walk? How how do we get people to do it? And, you know, without the the threat of just if you don't, you know, the serious illness is going to land on your doorstep. And it's just those tiny habits, those tiny changes. That's, I think, the key to it. Yeah, I mean, uh... I love Rumi, you know, the, the the Persian poet. And he said, yesterday I was clever and I was changing the world. And today I'm wiser and I'm changing <laughs> myself. 
And that's yeah. what I try and live my own life by now that I focus on walking the talk myself. And then from there as a base, using that to encourage and support others to look at po- small positive changes that can support them on a longer term basis. And I think that's what it's about. It's about the people that are interested and committed to health and well-being, joining forces and, and getting that message out there that it's never too late to make those changes that your future self will really thank you for. Never too late. And 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 that is such an important message because we're we know that people tend to, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna make some lifestyle changes. And then they say, right, I'm gonna go and go in a celery juice fast for five days. And you know, three hours later the biscuits have been cracked open. So uh it's it's really trying to get people to understand the the value of those smaller changes and and how they are much more likely to stick than these massive uh, overhauls that will end up just creating a different type of problem further on down the line. And and that is, you know, we we tend to be all or nothing. The other stuff seems very boring, mm. you know. <laughs> so it's trying to say, actually, no, it's it's baby steps, small and often, and um, just trying to make these things stick. That that I think is a is a real key to success in this area. Absolutely. Consistency and stickability. And, and as I say, never stop starting. Dominique, can you give our listeners three take homes for a more resilient mind? Yeah, it's 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 a hard one, isn't it? Because how do you remember that advice at 1.30 or 3.30 in the morning when you're tossing and turning and you can't sleep and your mind is, is roaring? So I think remembering the the tools that will will help your mind, you know, and that's your your physical things in terms of giving into it and saying, okay, I have to get up and I have to read and and so on. And um, I think we talk often about being kind to ourselves uh, and so on. But I've I've heard different people approach this in a slightly different way, which is, would you talk to your best friend the way that your inner mm. voice talks to you? And I think that's a really useful thing. And remembering that line you know when the stuff is whirring around your head flip it and i think you 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 might calm down or quiet down those voice that critical inner voice that we have so yeah i think go gently being kind um and trying to be realistic about you know sometimes it's okay to be stressed and it is we need that stress mm-hmm. and we need that that pain in order it can't all be you know skipping through fields and rainbows it, it just can't so accepting that that life can be hard and, you know, without the bad stuff, we don't always appreciate the good stuff either. So I think those would be the things that I, I try and focus on. As I said, hard to take your own advice at 3.30 in the morning when you just can't sleep and you're worried and fretting and stressed. But at the same time, I think trying to, to create those better habits on a day-to-day basis will help give you that little sense of relief resilience and the gratitude as well is is uh, is a huge part of that. Wise words, Dominic. I mean, life certainly isn't uh, skipping through uh, fields and uh, meadows and rainbows for anybody. And what's no. really, really incredibly interesting is how people can really grow from their setbacks and and life adversities. And as I say, become become wiser, become stronger become better and and develop a whole new mindset and perspective on themselves, on the relationships, on what's important and on what matters. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And it's, um, you know, it's not to say I'm 
please don't get cancer. Obviously not. But at the same time, mm. there's there's always a lesson. And I think in, in the good or the bad of mistakes, and you know, entrepreneurs talk about it a lot and, and you know, you know, fail and fail well, fail big. You know, that, that sort of appetite in the US of of failure and, and recovering from it. And, you know, I I think it's not that I celebrate failure, but I definitely try and draw lessons and really, you know, analyze when things have gone wrong and, and been able to say, right, well, maybe I didn't make as much effort here. Or I made a poor decision over there. Um, but always to draw those lessons that we can learn from, I think, is is really useful to have in your toolbox. And finally, Dominique, for you, what's the meaning of life? Oh, that is a, that's a very tricky question to answer. You know, it's it's hard when you read a lot of uh, great thinkers and philosophical minds about the meaning of life. And I think sometimes I'm overwhelmed by how insignificant we, we are as individuals, really. And sometimes think, what's the point? Why am I here? You know, these big, difficult questions. But then you look around the table and your loved ones, if you're lucky enough to be able to sit around a table with loved ones. And I think that that, that for me to be able to, to sit and, and eat food with people I love, I think that for me is, is huge, but also to make people happy through food. There is, there is nothing I love more than feeding people and seeing that joy. And so I think, yeah, that's definitely what I'm here to do. Well, Dominique, thanks so much for being my guest in the doctor's chair. Keep leading, keep inspiring, keep making others happy through food and keep making a great difference uh, in the world of lifestyle as medicine. Dominique Kemp, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my podcast in the doctor's chair. For further resources to support you to live with more vitality, please visit my website, drmarkrow.com. 